Okay, uh, I think that's that's pretty much it coming up. Um, and then we have the picnic on October the 12th. So those are those are upcoming events. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so each of you can make sure you're in fellowship. Scripture makes it clear that when we sin, we quit walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the flesh or the sin nature. The way to recover is simply to admit or acknowledge our personal sins to God the Father through silent prayer, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship so that we can resume that forward momentum and recover and continue to enjoy our fellowship with God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and I will pray after a few moments of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have provided us with your word to give us guidance and direction, that your word gives us a framework for thinking in terms of how you think, to align our thoughts with your absolutes as you have set them forth in Scripture. And it's important for us to understand that the role of Scripture is to communicate your will to us, and therefore you wrote it, had it written in such a way, and inspired it in such a way to be understood and understandable and that as we uh, apply the basic principles of interpretation to your word, we're able to understand it because it's, it's, it's communicated in language. And since you created through the use of language, we know that language has an eternal aspect in terms of your own thought and your, your own um, uh, logic within your thinking, and therefore you are able to create us in such a way as to be able to understand your communication to us. The problem is sin, and with, because of sin, we seek to suppress the truth of your word and to avoid its implications on our lives. And, Father, as we study this evening, we pray that we might come to understand those implications a little more clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Acts 18, towards the end of Paul's second missionary journey. We're finishing up Acts 18, we'll transition into Acts 19, and then during this time we'd move from the second to the third missionary journey. There's a very quick transition as Luke records these events, and as we were looking at the passage last time in terms of verse 18 of Acts 18, we read, so Paul still remained a good while, uh, that is, at Corinth. 
Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for uh, Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. Now, I covered this last time, and it's very likely that this was a modification of the Old Testament Nazarite vow, the implications of which are spelled out in Numbers 6, 1 through 21. As a Jewish vow, this was one that would be taken uh, the hair would be allowed to grow long. Uh, there are some times, even today in modern Judaism, where this takes place. Uh, for example, in the death of a loved one, someone may go a, a, a male may go a year. Um, in fact, I know of a, a, a acquaintance of mine who's doing who's done that this last year may go a year before he cuts his hair. But in the vow, the scriptural vows, they were to go to Jerusalem to the temple to cut their hair. And there was probably, most scholars believe that there was probably some sort of modification made for the diaspora Jews uh, where it may be difficult, uh, financially impossible for them to travel to Jerusalem. And so they would uh, then cut it locally. So that's what is going on with Paul. And this, as I pointed out last time, raises an important question that we see going through the book of Acts. And it may, may or may not have occurred to you, but I know it's occurred to some people. As we follow these Jewish Christians through the book of Acts, we see that they're still going to the temple. This was, this was common in the first century that until the destruction of the temple that they still participated in, in worship. They still honored the Mosaic law and, uh, but not as a way of justification or as a way of, of sanctification. But because that was their history, that was their culture, and because we're in a transition period, uh, in history, as the dispensations has shifted, there is a transition where, where things are moving along. And so I started this last time and we're going to go back and continue that. Uh, here's a map of the Eastern Mediterranean. And we see the, the uh, red line here from uh, Corinth over here in Greece, in the green area. This is Achaia. We trace Paul's route. He goes to Ephesus for a uh, brief time described in verses 19 uh, <clears throat> down through uh, 22, or down through 21. And then he goes from there on across to where he lands at Caesarea, called Caesarea by the Sea or Caesarea Maritima. And then he went to Jerusalem briefly, then headed to Damascus and then back up to Antioch, and then he immediately left on his third journey. He leaves from Centuria, which is the port on the eastern side of the Corinthian Isthmus, in order to head out. This is where he shaved his head after taking the vow. So let's go through some of these points on the transitional nature in Acts. This is quite important. In fact, today I was reading through a commentary on on Acts where the author was talking about uh, things uh, of, like this, things like the the casting out of demons, miracles, tongues. That this is part part of the transitional nature of Acts in the apostolic period, as there's a transition from the age of Israel and and Israel being under the law and the church age. Now, I want to make this clear because that doesn't mean that salvation or some things slowly phased in. 
things changed abruptly, precisely, on Pentecost. But that word about that transition did not get around very, very rapidly. And my first point last time was simply to define the nature of transition, which means that there's a change from one thing to another, that in some senses there's an overlap of certain features of one dispensation into the following or into the subsequent dispensation as it takes time for the new revelation to be uh, revealed and disseminated into the new dispensation. Now, a dispensation, a dispensational shift is defined by certain characteristics. One of the first characteristic is that there is new revelation given. And I usually identify that as a covenant. Most of the time it is related to a covenant. For example, uh, initially there's a creation covenant given uh, by God in his mandates to Adam in the garden. Uh, They are to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the field. He is to work and guard the garden. Uh, He is not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after the woman is created, they are to multiply and fill the earth. All of those are commands are expressed uh, in the same way in the first and second chapter of Genesis, which indicates God expects them to carry out those mandates, including be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Because of sin, they didn't get very far. I don't think they were in the garden very long. Uh, certainly not long enough for Eve to become pregnant or else God interfered and, and kept it uh, back, uh, you know, uh, so that that didn't happen right away. But then when you get the curse, and we've gone through this in detail uh, back in, in when we studied Genesis 3, when you look at the curse, each item related in the, in the judgment, the announcement of the judgment to the, uh, to the serpent, remember the initial command to man was he was to rule over the uh, beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. Well, when when Eve listens to the serpent, she's not ruling over the uh, animal world. And so there's now going to be a curse or judgment in relation to the animal world and in relation to the serpent specifically and the woman, that the seed of the serpent would uh, strike the heel of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, that the question ahead of the serpent, and this is specifically a uh, the first um, prophecy related to uh, the coming of the Messiah. But embedded within that is that there's going to be this this antagonism starts to enter into the relationship between human beings and the animal kingdom. The serpent was cursed more than all of the beasts of the field, which indicates that they came under judgment as well. Uh, the woman, whose part of her responsibility was to f- multiply and fill the earth, and now there's going to be pain associated with that in, in, in childbearing. Uh, the man was to uh, till the garden and guard the garden, but now the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. So in each of the areas where there were specific responsibilities given in the creation mandate, there's a modification uh, due to judgment from sin. So we usually refer that revelation that God gives in Genesis 3 changes the dispensation. There's a new, new revelation, new responsibilities given in that new revelation, and then there'll be a new failure, and then there'll be another shift that occurs um, with at, at the end of uh, the flood period 
when Noah lands. Then there's the covenant God made with Noah. There's new revelation. Again, modifications related to the man's relationship to the animal kingdom. Uh, man is still to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, there's modifications now on his diet. He's allowed to eat meat. There's, In other words, there's new revelation, which entails new responsibilities. Man fails those responsibilities, and then God shifts the dispensation with calling out Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's a new revelation. But how many people were aware of the new revelation in Genesis chapter 12? There was a large population on the earth at that point, but the only person who knew that God was calling out Abram to take him to a new location and to start a new work that through Abram and his seed that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed was Abraham. Nobody else knew it. It's a transition. Those who the the Gentiles, the the uh, everyone else other than Abraham is still functioning under the Noahic covenant. But that doesn't mean that the Abrahamic covenant, especially the principle that those who uh, curse you, I will curse, and those who bless you, I will bless, isn't in effect. It's just that nobody, probably nobody else knows it. You had other believers on the face of the earth. Job lived at approximately that same time. Melchizedek certainly was a believer uh, living in uh, Salem, which was the ancient name for Jerusalem. So we go through a transition uh, and transition type of uh, period at that point. There will be other transition periods that, that take place. I think that using this model and that, that the, the, the distinguishing remark, the marks that we're using there, that there's new revelation, new responsibility, there's a <clears throat> new failure and a new judgment are, are uh, categories that have been laid out by a number of dispensational theologians over the last couple of centuries, from John Nelson Darby through James Hall Brooks, who was uh, Schofield's pastor. Most of this was pretty well established in the Schofield Reference Bible, which for many people became the standard for how many dispensations there were and what there were, even though there have been some different people with different modifications. James Hall Brooks, who was the pastor of a Presbyterian church in uh, in St. Louis and who was a influential on uh, C.I. Schofield, uh, <clears throat> who who edited and did the notes on the Schofield Reference Bible and also mentored Lewis Berry Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary. Um, uh, Schofield got his thinking on dispensationalism from James Hall Brooks, but he didn't follow Brooks. Brooks, in fact, like some earlier dispensationalists, separated the period of the life of Christ into a distinct dispensation a distinct period of time. And if you look at the criteria that Schofield developed, it's easy to see why that fits as a distinct dispensation because you have, first of all, a new revelation. You have the revelation of God in terms of the incarnate second person of the Trinity. This is a revelation that goes above and beyond any kind of revelation that anybody had ever uh, received before. Moses uh, had a great revelation from God on Mount Sinai, but it's nothing like the actual incarnation of the eternal God in the presence of Jesus Christ. You have a new message, don't you? 
a new responsibility. The new responsibility is articulated as we saw in our opening study in uh, Matthew on Sunday, on Sunday morning. The new, the new message is what? Obey the law? No, that's not thrown out. So it's not, I don't know if it's really a full board dispensation or it, but we don't have another word for it. It's clearly a transitional dispensation. But how many people knew that Jesus was, that the Messiah was on the earth outside of, if you were outside of those living in the area of Judea and Galilee? You know, if you were a Jew living in, in Pontus or in, uh, in Libya or in Spain, you had no idea something was changing, but it had. The incarnate God was walking the face of the earth. So there was a transition there. But you have new revelation, new message, and the new message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the message now is don't believe in the future coming of a Messiah. The message is the Messiah is here. Accept him now. So there's a clear, clearly a new message, a new revelation that's given and a new responsibility that's given. And there's a specific failure associated with Israel because of that, which, which inevitably results in the fifth cycle of discipline coming upon Israel in uh, A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So there's a specific revelation. There's a specific responsibility. There's a specific judgment. And, and, and then things shift again. So I think a case can be made and has been made by, by others that there is a distinct dispensation there related to Jesus. And I think it needs to be delineated as James Hall Brooks did as the age of the Messiah because that relates what his message was. It is a hinge dispensation because he's fulfilling the law, looking to the past, and he's the fulfillment of messianic prophecies and proclaiming the presence of the messianic kingdom. And then when it's rejected, uh, the message shifts to a postponement of the messianic kingdom and the inevitability of judgment on that generation. And then once the crucifixion, burial, and ascension occurs, resurrection and ascension occurs, then there is a, uh, another offer of the kingdom not one that would abrogate the inevitability of the AD 70 judgment, but that Israel is still, God is still extending grace to Israel to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And if they had, Jerusalem still would have been destroyed in AD 70, but we probably would have had a truncated uh, a ch- church age. Uh, but that in, that was a real offer, and if they had accepted it, things would have been a little bit different. It didn't turn out that way. So this helps us understand some of the nature of transition. So in this transition, it means that in some senses, there's an overlap of some features of a previous dispensation into the subsequent dispensation because it takes time for the, this new revelation, the new responsibilities to be revealed and disseminated uh, in the new dispensation. And so this shift is taking place. The second thing I pointed out last time is this does not mean that there's not an absolute break. There is an absolute break between the two dispensations. Once God announced to Abraham that he was going to bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him, that was now... The, the standard operating procedure for the new dispensation, whether anybody else knew it or not, uh, it was the it was the new uh, the new uh, absolute rule. 
And same thing with the church age. Christ had come. He had fulfilled the law. His death was the end of the law. Salvation was from that moment on based upon belief in Christ as a, a, as a Savior. But as I pointed out last time, uh, we have some, some transitional issues th- to deal with. So under point number two, this doesn't mean that an absolute break between the two dispensations does not take place. It does take place, but it takes time for people to learn it. It's very clear that the church age makes this decisive break and, uh, and, and the church age begins in Acts 2 on Pentecost in AD 33. But there's some things took some time. For example, I pointed this out last time. Fifty days earlier, Christ died on the cross and was the end of the law. So you have this period of 50 days between his death on the cross and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So during that 50-day period, faith is in Christ alone and his death on the cross, but you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Is that 50-day period part of the age of Israel or part of the age of the church? It's a transitional period. Uh, it's probably part of the age of Israel until the, the day, day of the cross, but it's not part of the age of the law because the law is ended. The, the dispensation of the law is the last dispensation in the age of Israel. The age of Israel begins with the dispensation of the patriarchs and then the dispensation of the law, but then there's this 50-day transition period that comes at the end. Um, another thing I pointed out, from, Passover, from the point of, of uh, Passover, AD 33, when Christ was crucified, salvation is a past completed act. But if you were living in Rome as a Jew and you died in A.D. 34, you died a week after Christ was crucified, a month after Christ was crucified, a year after Christ was crucified, the only revelation you had received at this point was Old Testament revelation. You had not even heard that that the Messiah had come yet. So you would still be an Old Testament saint even though you're living in the church age. And this is why we see these transitional markers that occur in, in the book of Acts, though the Holy Spirit descended and the church began on, on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, the Holy Spirit did not come upon and indwell all believers at that time. There's a clear transition that takes place. Uh, two years later, when Peter and John uh, go with uh, following Philip's initial evangelistic outreach to the Samaritans, Peter and John come, and then they receive, uh, the after they're saved, they receive the Holy Spirit after their, their salvation, showing that it comes from the hands of the apostles. And it's another five or six years after that, in A.D. 40 or 41, when Peter takes the gospel to the Gentiles and, when, and with Cornelius, and at that point the Gentiles are brought into the body of Christ, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then it's another ten years after that when we get to the, the, the next chapter in Acts 19, when Paul runs into these twelve disciples of, the, uh, of John the Baptist, and they don't know anything about Jesus' baptism. They don't know anything about Jesus. All they know about is John's baptism, and they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. So Paul tells them about Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit. They trust in Christ, and then they're baptized. So that's, uh, that's almost 20 years. It's 18 years after Christ died on the cross. So there are clearly these, these transitions that take place. So it's not this cut and dried, you, you don't just bring out your razor blade 
and everything changes on a dime. It's, it's, it doesn't work that way. There's these transitions. So thinking about it that way, we know that numerous Old Testament saints still lived in Israel and throughout the world uh, who would die before ever hearing that the Messiah had come. They were in that transition period. If these these twelve disciples of John the Baptist had, if any of them had died before Paul got to them, then they would not have heard that Jesus had come. They would be an Old Testament an Old Testament saint. It seems to me. The fourth point is that Jewish Christians. This is I'm talking about Peter and James and John and Paul and uh, all the leaders in the Jerusalem church that meet at the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, Jewish Christians don't begin to figure out the role of the Mosaic law, that it's really been abrogated and it's not the rule of life anymore until the Jerusalem council in A.D. 49. Now, some of them were figuring it out, but some of them hadn't quite. That's the whole point of the, that the Jerusalem Council is, is what role does the Mosaic Law have and should we impose this on Gentile believers now? And so they're, they're growing in their understanding of the new revelation that's, that's coming. Paul doesn't write, um, doesn't write Galatians until approximately that same time. James, the epistle of James, is written maybe two or three years earlier, maybe as early as 43. Matthew was probably written between 45 and 50. These were the three earliest writings in the New Testament, so there's there's not even much dissemination or distribution of what little has been written for the New Testament yet. So, so this is why you're in a transition period, why you still have the revelatory gifts of, of knowledge and prophecy. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be made complete. The, uh, the partial will end. In other words, knowledge and prophecy, these revelatory gifts were still necessary in this transition period because there wasn't a completed canon. There wasn't sufficient revelation yet. But once the canon was completed and you had sufficient revelation, then these uh, these uh, revelatory gifts would cease. And so usually when you re- read writers talking about the transition period, they're talking about the fact that during the apostolic era there were miracles to to authenticate the apostolic credentials, there were revelatory gifts operational, there was a tongues operational. Why, what was the purpose of tongues? In 1 Corinthians 14, citing Isaiah 14, uh, Paul says that the purpose of tongues is as a sign of judgment to Israel. Well, if the if on the day of Pentecost, God's plan for Israel stopped, God hit the you know completely hit the pause button. Why are we still getting a have a sign gift that's a sign of judgment to Israel until AD 70? See, it's still a transition period. Excuse me, I didn't know I had that on. So, we still have this transition period taking place where where there's still a message that's being given to Israel, the extension of grace, and certain uh, Jewish rituals are still operational, and it's not wrong to 
follow them as long as the motivation isn't to get saved, to get justified, or to get sanctified. So, um, there, there's, and, and in this process, the Jewish Christians are still trying to figure out the role of the law. This is why Paul had to straighten Peter out in Galatians chapter 2, because even, you know, Peter's getting this, getting confused over all of this. Then on the fifth point, Paul doesn't write or start start explaining the mystery doctrine per se. Now, what I mean by mystery doctrine, this is an important term, and we're going to get into this, and it's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be a while before we get there in Matthew, but when we get to Matthew 13, and Jesus starts teaching the parables about the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, I mentioned this Sunday morning. There are those who have unwittingly change that to talk about the mystery form of the kingdom. There's no mystery form of the kingdom in in, in the Greek. It's the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, in in Greek, the concept of mystery is some sort of, it refers to an unrevealed or previously unknown or unrevealed teaching or doctrine. So there's information that hadn't been revealed yet. And the information about the church had not been revealed. There's no hint in the Old Testament, that there's going to be a lengthy period of time between the first advent and the second advent. That's why it looked like the cross and the crown were right on top of each other and why many Jews thought that the crown would come before the cross or that's what they were, they were looking for, the crown instead of the cross. And the reason for that is because that meant that Israel didn't have a hint of what was going to happen of their rejection of the Messiah. That gave them full freedom to accept or reject the Messiah. And if they accept the Messiah, then one option, you know, plan A would have gone into effect. If they reject the Messiah, then plan B would go into effect. And so uh, plan B entailed a new people of God, not replacing Israel, but coming alongside of Israel as a distinct people of God with distinct responsibilities and a distinct spiritual life and distinct uh, privileges. And so this, the explanation of the... uh, of the role of the church is really left to the Apostle Paul as the Apostle to the Gentiles. So he doesn't start developing this. You get a little bit of it in terms of the body of Christ teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. And 1 Corinthians is written uh, at the end of the... um, is written at the end of the third. Is written during the third missionary journey when he's in Ephesus. He writes three epistles. The third missionary journey: Romans, First, and Second Corinthians. So we're well into the period of about fifty-three to fifty-four by the time you start getting any development related to the mystery doctrine of the church age. He talks about spiritual gifts in First Corinthians chapter twelve. He talks about spiritual gifts in Romans chapter twelve. But there's there's no mention of spiritual gifts per se in anything prior to that. So that's not really known. Then after the third missionary journey when he's sent to Rome, he writes the four prison epistles, Ephesians and Colossians, Philemon and Philippians. And it's in those, those prison epistles that Paul really starts explaining the distinctions, distinctives of the church age and God's plan for the church. So up until that particular time, which is now close to approximately 60, up until that time, most 
church-age Christians weren't fully clued in yet on the transition into the church age. So we're going through this this uh, transitional period. And this is part of what Matthew is doing in the Gospel of Matthew, is writing to encourage these uh, Jewish believers in Judea in terms of how God's plan for Israel has shifted now that uh, they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That's that's one of the sub-themes in, in the Gospel of Matthew. So the fifth point was that Paul doesn't write about the mystery doctrine per se of the church age until Romans and 1 Corinthians at the earliest, and then it doesn't get its fullest development until you get into the prison epistles uh, uh, somewhere around 59, 60, 61 uh, A.D. Sixth point. During most of this time, Jewish believers in Israel are still consistently practicing their customs from the Torah, though not for salvation or sanctification. They're not trying to get justified by their sacrifices, by observing the ritual in the temple, but this is where they they would go and meet, and they would have evangelism at the temple. And there was a very still a close relationship between the Christian and Jewish communities in Jerusalem until you get to the Jewish, the latter stages of the Jewish revolt in about 69 uh, A.D. What happens is that in the initial part of the, 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 the siege of Jerusalem, when Vespasian is bringing his, his troops to surround uh, Jerusalem, then Nero died and Vespasian had to leave to go back to Rome. And so his, his son Titus, uh, retires the troops back to Caesarea, and they regroup, leaving a light uh, army surrounding Jerusalem. At that time, the Christians who've understood Luke 21 in Jesus' warning that when you see these things happen, get out of Dodge, in other words, leave Jerusalem, the Christians left, and they did not stand, in the, and they did not fight in the Jewish revolt against the Romans. This created a a division between the Jews and the Christians because the Christians were viewed as being traitors to the Jews because they wouldn't fight against the Romans. But they were following Jesus' command to, to leave. Same thing happens again during the Bar Kokhba revolt at the beginning of the of the second century, that when that revolt occurred, the Christians would not participate uh, with the Jews, and so that drove a further wedge between the Jewish and Christian communities. But during the first 40 or 50 years... Of, of Christianity in Israel, Christianity was viewed as another sect of Judaism. And so many of the Christians continued to go to synagogue. They continued to observe all of the customs of the Torah, but not to get grace, not in a legalistic sense, not to be justified. Seventh point, the gospel preaching to the Jews Jew first and also to the Greek extends through the entire book of Acts. This goes through the entire book of Acts. Uh, <clears throat> Paul consistently on all three of his missionary journeys goes to the synagogues first before he goes to the Gentiles, and he always puts this emphasis on that. Now, the end of the book of Acts is approximately the same time that the Jewish revolt begins around 66 to 67. That's We're not sure exactly when Paul was martyred, but it's about that time, 66 or 67. Paul and Peter are martyred in Jerusalem, and that is about the time, 66 is when the Jewish revolt 
uh, revolt began. And so we see this pattern. Now I want you, I want to point this out in, a, in in two or three verses. In Acts 19:8, this is in the next chapter that we're going to come to. Where I thought we might get down there tonight, but I can see now we're not going to get that that far. We see that Paul's modus operandi is to go into the synagogue. Now, there was a large Jewish community in Ephesus, and they had a uh, substantive uh, synagogue there. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, not just three weeks like we had in, in, in uh, Thessalonica, but for three months he's going in and he is teaching in the synagogue. And he's and the way that Luke expresses it, and it's important to pay attention to these words, is he's reasoning and persuading what? Concerning the things of the kingdom of God. This message about the kingdom of God is still at the center of their of their message. Because what he would be teaching would be in relation to the offer of the kingdom and the postponement of the kingdom, but that if Israel would would respond to Jesus as the Messiah, then the kingdom would come. That was the offer that, that Peter made when he talks about repent and let each of you be baptized in Acts 2.38. That term, repent, we studied this. We took it back to it's a reflection of the Hebrew word shuv, Back in uh, Teshuvah, back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1, 1 through 3, that God said that when you turn back to me, then I will bring all these blessings upon you. And so this message is still a national message to Israel to turn to God and accept the Messiah, and then these blessings would come. In Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter says, repent. If you repent, then the times of refreshing will come. That's a term in relation to the millennial kingdom, the millennial promises. Of course, they are set against accepting Jesus as the Messiah. So this is their rejection of that, of the offer just continues to solidify, uh, their, their approaching judgment. But Paul is still presenting this case to them as he goes into the synagogues. Now, the first word that I want to emphasize here is the, the word spoke boldly. This is the word parathiazomai, and it's an imperfect tense verb. Now, that's important because it means that it's continuous action. Now, not continuous in the sense of uninterrupted action, but you might talk about the fact that I used this illustration the other day that when I was a kid, I had to practice piano 30 minutes every morning. And so I, if I said I practice piano every morning, that was not uninterrupted practice. It was just a regular uh, practice uh, each and every morning. It stopped and started up the next morning, stopped and started up the next morning. So that's one way of talking about uh, an action that, that occurs periodically but continuously uh, for a period of time. So that's how this, he does this consistently for three months, and it emphasizes a confident, bold speaker, a type of teaching that was unheard of in the synagogue, that emphasizing this is what the text says. Because what often happens in the synagogue in the development of rabbinical theology is you have what sometimes occurs today in Christian churches, well, you have this view, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this, and you develop this, this, this dialectic going on between two or three different views, but you never tell anybody what the text actually means. 
Uh, I've heard that this is what happens now with a lot of uh, young men coming out of seminaries. They can tell you five different positions on how to interpret Genesis 1, but they don't know which one's right. And, and this is really a sad case, but they can tell you who holds e- to each of those positions. Now, that's an important thing to know as a pastor, but you need to know which one's right and why it's right and why the other ones are wrong. You just don't tell you people, you know, there are five views here. Here's what they are. Go home, be warm, and be filled. You know, one is right and the other are wrong, or all of them are wrong. But Paul is doing this, and he's reasoning. So when we talk about the the public speaking of the apostle, how it is described is that he is uh, presenting it as a, he's not discussing it, it's not a dialogue, it's more along the lines of, of uh, the official lines of rhetoric or a disputation where he's setting forth a thesis that Jesus is the Messiah and then he is marshalling the evidence from the Old Testament prophecies and the Old Testament passages to show that Jesus fit the bill, the prophecies, the criterion to be the Old Testament, uh, the, the Old Testament Messiah. And he does this towards the aim of convincing them to make a decision to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is trying to get them to make a decision and to accept Jesus as their Messiah. He's, ex- he's trying to get them to change. Now, there's some people who say, well, Christians shouldn't try to get people to change. Well, if the apostles hadn't tried to get people to change, we'd all be uh, running around like a, like a bunch of barbarians, and the gospel never would have gotten anywhere. Their goal was to change how people thought and how, what they believed. But notice what he's reasoning and persuading about is the things of the kingdom of God. Because he's helping them understand who Jesus was as the Messiah, the offer of the kingdom by John the Baptist, by Jesus, by the disciples, the rejection of the king and the kingdom by the Pharisees, and why it's been postponed, and why the king died on the cross, and all that was, all of this is entailed in what he would have communicated. This is just shorthand. We're not ever told what was taught, what the specifics were on the kingdom of God, but that's what we learned from the Gospels. It's the same thing when we, we looked at this in Acts chapter 1, when the disciple says, Lord, is after 40 days, Luke says, uh, Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of God. But we don't know what he said about the kingdom of God. we just told he taught about the kingdom of God. We can go back to those parables in Matthew and the other things that he taught related to the other parables that he taught related to the kingdom of God in Matthew and Luke, and we can come to understand what it was that he was teaching. But all Luke says in Luke 1 is he taught about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And then when he got through, they said, uh, Lord, is it now that you're going to establish the kingdom? They still hadn't gotten it. They still hadn't realized that this is fully postponed yet. But Paul is still teaching these same things as his priority when he goes to the synagogue and teaches a Jewish audience because the kingdom of God had significance and value to them as Jews because they understood this prophecy from the Old Testament. That wasn't the focus when he talked to Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't understand those messianic prophecies. They didn't have that as part of their frame of reference. Now, the next time we see uh, something like this mentioned is in Acts 28.23. In Acts 28.23, we read, So when they had appointed him a day, that is Paul, uh, many came to, to him at his lodging. This is when he's under house arrest in Rome. 
Uh, notice it's not at his jail cell or at his prison, but there was a particular day when people could come, you had visitor's day, and people would come to sit and listen, and the Apostle Paul would answer their questions, and he would talk to them. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained. Uh, now, this is the word ectithemi, uh, which means to explain, expose, declare, or make clear. We'll see this uh, word used again in relation to what, what uh, Apollos is doing as he's proclaiming the gospel. It's, it helps us to understand it's an explanation of things, exposing truth, and making clear what the scriptures mean. So that he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. Notice he's talking about the kingdom of God still as the Jews, and these are Jews primarily coming to him in Rome. We know there's a Jewish group there. But he's still talking about the kingdom of God, persuading them, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. So he's going back to the Torah, he's going to the prophets, and he's tracing this theme of the kingdom of God. Still, this is in Acts 28-23. There's no Acts 29. So this emphasis on the kingdom of God goes all the way through Paul's ministry, as far as we know, to the to, to Acts 28. In Acts 28-31, he's preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So he's still uh, proclaiming this. This is the transition period during the, the uh, this initial stage because there's still that option for Israel to turn. The temple's still there. Fifth cycle of discipline hasn't happened yet. Hypothetically, they could have responded and accepted Jesus as the Messiah at that point. Jerusalem would still would have had to have been destroyed in judgment, but then this would have somehow played into a different scenario going into Daniel's 70th week. The church age would have been very truncated. That isn't what happened, but that's, that's the option. It's still presented as late as Acts 28 because we haven't gone into that final, final stage yet. Last week I was talking with... Um, um, Somebody. Who was I talking with last week? Um, and we were chatting. It'll come to me. We were chatting about this, and they came up with a, another great illustration of this. This is, this is like Jonah's message to the Assyrians. God had already announced to the Assyrians that he was going to judge them and destroy Nineveh. And, and Jonah was sent there to announce God's judgment. But when he announced God's judgment, God said... Okay, since they turn to me, I'm going to postpone judgment for 200 years. So that there's still, in God's plan, there's still these options, there's still these, these variables, uh, because of human volition. That, so, so people can respond and God, other things would have happened. So, they're still preaching the gospel. Now, in terms of transition, we also see this emphasized in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, uh, Paul is saying that when he, in terms of a, a principle he follows in ministry, to the Jews I became as a Jew. So he would follow their customs. He made sure that, that Timothy was circumcised, even though it had nothing to do with justification or, or, or sanctification. 
uh, even though the legalists were saying you had to be circumcised for that reason, he said, well, you're foolish and nobody should be circumcised because of your, uh, your teaching. He, he turned right around and had, had Timothy circumcised so it wouldn't be an issue when he, when he tried to minister to the Jewish community. And it was a cultural thing. It had nothing whatsoever to do with, um, with justification or sanctification. So Paul says to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. I followed the laws of kashrut, the kosher eating laws. He, he followed the laws not because of a legalistic purpose, but because he, he wanted to gain a hearing. He, it was, as far as he was concerned, dietary laws are, are non-essentials. You know, if that's going to offend you, great. I'm not going to let that get in the way of getting the gospel to you. So he he did what he did in order that he might win the Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law that I may win those who are under the law. And they said to those who are without law, i.e. the Gentiles, to those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ, that I may win those who are without law. So he understood that you just have to be sensitive to your audience. You have to understand that that when you're in some situations, in some circumstances with some people, you don't um, you don't engage in certain practices that you think are perfectly legitimate for a, a Christian. And then when you're in other situations and circumstances, then you do that. I, I had a situation a couple of times this last year. I've had the uh, privilege of being invited over to a Jewish family's home to observe Shabbat dinner on a Friday night. And so you go along with the customs. You don't want to offend anybody. Uh, you, you don't want to You don't have your cell phone turned off completely. You don't want to uh, violate any of the sabbatical laws. But you're not doing it for a religious purpose. You're just doing it because... You're respecting their traditions and their beliefs because that's not the issue. The issue is eventually to make the gospel clear. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. All right. That's understanding the nature of transition. It's moving from one dispensation to another and that there were were some things that were still in effect because the temple was still there in Jerusalem the ritual services were still going on, so Paul and other Jews still had vows. They made sacrifices in the temples. They went to uh, Jerusalem on the High Holy Days. Incidentally, tomorrow night at sunset, we have the beginning of the High Holy Days for this year. Uh, the day uh, and and starting at sundown tomorrow night is uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, and that begins a series of about. Ten days, ending with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so this is a, a very special time in the Jewish calendar when the new, year, uh, the new Year begins. And on the Day of Atonement, uh, we had uh, Rabbi Haas here a few years ago explain this, and we really understood the legalism uh, within uh, the, the Jewish concept that on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, there is, you, you have to recognize that, that, uh, make a vow towards God. In some cases, uh, recognize that, that uh, you, you make sure you ha- you're gonna have enough brownie points. He said that. Enough points with God in order to get to heaven. And if you don't, then you need to, uh, confess those sins, repent of those sins, and then the next year, uh, improve your life. So uh, 
Christians can observe that as a cultural and historical and a respectful manner so as not to offend uh, anyone. Now, we come back to Acts 18.19, finish up the second missionary journey. So Paul left Centuria, takes the boat, takes a ship across the Aegean to Ephesus, but he's only going to spend a short time there. He goes to Ephesus, and he himself entered the synagogue. Notice the same pattern. He goes to synagogue first, to the Jew first. There's a reason for that, because it's this transition period. To the Jew first, and then when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, notice there's a sense of positive volition there. We want you to stay. We want to hear more. He did not consent. Now, the reason for this is, is said that he wanted to make it to Jerusalem uh, in terms of winter weather, things of that nature. I'm not sure uh, what was all involved there, but that he apparently had an itinerary. He needed to get to Jerusalem by a certain date, and so he did not want to spend too much time in Ephesus. Um, he took leave of them, verse 21, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now, the word I underlined there in verse 19 is reason, dialegomai uh, again. This is where he's going in dis- discussing, offering a disputation, giving a thesis statement that God is, that Jesus Christ is the, the Son of Man, he's the promised Messiah, and he fits all of the Old Testament promises and prophecies. So here's a map. He's, he's ta- left from Centuria, sails across the Aegean. Uh, this would not take but a day or so, a day and a half or so, to get over to Ephesus. He's there for a short time, and then he sails from Ephesus uh, down past Cyprus all the way down till he arrives at the port of Caesarea Maritima. Now, the port here was built by Herod the Great, one of his many tremendous uh, architectural accomplishments. Uh, Alexandria is located down here in the north of Egypt, and then Antioch is up here in the north, up in Syria. And so there's no port anywhere along the coast. So he created an artificial harbor, and the background for this verse uh, shows you an artist's rendition of what that artificial harbor looked like. You can still see some of the remains there today, but this was a fabulous city that was uh, created and built by Herod the Great. And so in Acts 18.22, Paul, uh, we're told when he landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, that would be going up to Jerusalem, he went down then to Antioch. Now, here is what the harbor at Caesarea looks like today. Beautiful blue Mediterranean. The pillars on the left would have been part of the palace that was located there that where Paul was held for a while that was off to the left. And it's this area over here where you have this tower remains over here. This is where the artificial harbor was, was built. He goes, goes down to Antioch. After he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia. So Luke just gives a very brief account. He just goes up, doesn't even mention Jerusalem, but the fact that he went up means he went up to Jerusalem. See, when you're, when you're there at Caesarea going up, that's the only way you go is to Jerusalem. Then he left there and he goes down to Antioch. Uh, which is located here, and then he's there for a while. We don't know how long, probably not not long. And then he took off for his third missionary journey, and he travels to um, across through Tarsus, Cilicia, 
and we're told that he crossed um, uh, Galatia and Phrygia. This would be across southern Galatia, I believe. There's a big debate over northern or southern Galatia. I believe all of this is related to those early churches. He's doing follow-up on the churches planted in the first missionary journey, uh, revisiting Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, going to Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch. And then from there he travels uh, the shortest route possible, uh, to get to Ephesus. Remember, on the second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit prevented him from going into Asia, uh, which is the eastern province, or the western province, the western part of Turkey. But now he's going to go to Asia, and he's going to spend over two years, almost three years, in Ephesus. He's going to have a school there, a train school, where he's going to train uh, ministers, pastors, missionaries, and they will go out all over the province of Asia planting churches. This is when the seven churches of, of, of Revelation are all started. It's Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, per, uh, Pergamum, uh, Philadelphia, Heropolis, Laodicea, Colossae, these churches are all started during this uh, two- to three-year period of time that Paul uh, Paul is in Ephesus. Now, when he came to Ephesus, he ran into a Jew named Apollos. Now, this is another feature of this transitional era. He runs into Apollos, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, so he's Egyptian from, from North, North Africa, from Egypt, an eloquent man, this is a term there, this is, this, he's, he is a good speaker and mighty in the scriptures and came to Ephesus. So this is where Paul is here in Ephesus. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, but he doesn't know Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead yet. He just knew about, see, you're going to run in, in Acts 19, we run into these apostles of John the Baptist who didn't know about Jesus. But before we get to them, we've got Apollos who knew about the beginning of the Lord's ministry, but he didn't know about the end of the Lord's ministry. And he's instructing the way of the Lord. Um, and this is a perfect passive participle. He was instructed. It's a paraphrastic participle, so it's just talking about the fact that he had in the past completed action been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, which means he's passionate about his message, he spoke and taught accurately. This is another word that we've seen before, uh, didasco, which means to teach, to instruct. And in rabbinic Judaism, it had the idea of communicating the will of God to his people. So this is the emphasis. We've seen these words reasoning, persuading, teaching, uh, instructing. This is what a pastor is supposed to do. These are the primary terms that are used. And he's fervent in spirit, zeo, meaning uh, to be boil, uh, to boil, to be hot, to be fervent, or to be ardent, used in a, in a metaphorical sense. Being fervent in the spirit is not a, it's simply meaning he's, he's passionate. The word spirit there isn't talking about the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. It's just talking about his attitude, his mental attitude. And he's instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, passionate about his message. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. See, he's got to be instructed about the baptism of Jesus, which it teaches about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know that yet. So he's got a truncated gospel message because he hasn't heard the whole story yet. He knew only the baptism of John. Now, the baptism of John, we'll get into the baptisms next week, 
The baptism of John was a baptism for repentance, uh, of, uh, for Israel to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Apollos is still preaching, not unlike the uh, disciples of John that we'll run into in the next, in the next chapter. So in verse 26, he said, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. This is that word ektithemi that we heard earlier, means literally to place something outside as you would expose someone to the elements. It's, so it came to mean uh, exposing someone to the truth, to, the, to an argument, to set forth or declare something. So he began to uh, expose the scriptures to uh, what the, in the synagogue. So he, again, he's teaching and instructing from the prophets. Now, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, so they, they've come, they had come with Paul. Paul had left them there in Ephesus. Paul went down to uh, Caesarea, to Jerusalem, and he's, he's been gone for a while. So now we're, we're looking at the, uh, the scene has shifted back. To, this is while Paul's gone from Ephesus. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him uh, the way of God more accurately. And, you know, when we get into this issue with whether or not women should teach men, it comes up in 1 Timothy 2. Somebody always wants to go to this passage and say, well, see, here's Priscilla explaining the gospel to, to, uh, uh, to, to Apollos. Yes, this is sitting around the coffee table. This isn't, this is an informal backroom setting. This isn't the formal teaching or instruction within the church. They're having a conversation. The Bible doesn't say that women should not have conversations about the scripture with men. It says they shouldn't be teaching men as any kind of formal position within the church. And this is part of our policy here. It's why, why we try to make a break somewhere around puberty that from that point on, the kids, the, 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 especially the, the boys in prep school, will only have male teachers. Uh, so uh, Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside, and they explained the way of God more accurately. They, they fill him in on the rest of, of Jesus' life and his death, burial, resurrection, um, and, and what's going on in terms of the kingdom of God. Now, in um, verse 27, Apollos wants to go to Corinth. So when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples... Uh, to receive him, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. So he's got the gift of pastor-teacher, and he's going to go to Corinth, and he's going to be their pastor for a while, while Paul's back in, in Ephesus. That's why Paul, Paul is going to say when he writes to Corinthians, some of you said, I am of Paul, I am of Christ, I am of Apollos. Okay, this Apollos has become their pastor for a while. And he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, Part of the job of a pastor is to protect the flock from error and to refute error. And so he is vigorously refuting uh, Jewish teaching, a work salvation, and showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, Hamashiach. So he is. Uh, this is how he's refuting them as he's going verse by verse through the Hebrew scriptures, showing the prophecies related to Jesus. And so it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, these are the disciples of John, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we haven't heard, even heard about the Holy Spirit. 
So we're going to stop there, and next time we'll come back and find out about Ephesus and find out about these disciples of John. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to reflect upon uh, your grace, but to learn from the examples of uh, Paul and of Apollos and the others in the early church who taught, who explained the scriptures, that that the scripture is, that the focal point of the local church is to understand your word, to uh, teach it, to explain it, to make it clear, and to argue from it, to refute error, and to present the truth. And Father, we pray that we might uh, value the truth of your word above all things, as the writer of Proverbs says, that we buy the truth and sell it not and that we might above all desire to walk closely with you as we come to learn about you through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.